I'm sorry, that's going to be stuck in your head for the rest of the night, isn't it? Um, welcome to church. My name is Pete, and I'm uh, one of the pastors. I'm actually the lead pastor of our church. And I don't know if you remember that ad. Uh, it was actually warning people not to go onto the railroad or something like that. And it's one of those really famous ads a few years ago. And it did what was quite impossible, I think. It almost made death funny. I mean, those little characters, pretty cute, aren't they? Until you really think about how gruesome it is. But it tried to make death funny. In reality, though, of course, we know that death is anything but amusing and funny. And we wouldn't be here, and this wouldn't be one of the top four questions uh, that people had if they could ask God any question. Uh, This is how we came up, by the way, with our topics. We asked people, if you could ask God anything, what would you ask Him? And the top four were the ones we looked at uh, this month. This made the top four because deep down inside we know there is something unsettling about death. There is something really troubling about death. And maybe for some of us here, we're actually pretty scared to think about death. Today I want to start by asking you the question, how do you feel? about death. How do you feel about death? Now, there are going to be some people here, you're going to be like, I don't even think about death because you're young, you've got a whole life ahead of you. Well, that'll change at some point. Um, It only takes a few decades before, uh, right now, a lot of us are going to lots of weddings, okay? A few decades on, there'll be more funerals than weddings. And there's some people here, and you'll agree that uh, you start seeing the people that you went to school with, that you grew up with, and You're going to their funerals. Now, others, though, you are young, relatively young. You've already lost loved ones. It's not just that the older people think about death, but there are some who've actually been face-to-face with death, and maybe you're here because a family, a friend, um, family member or friend, perhaps even those younger than you have been cut down in the prime of life. So how do you feel about death? You need to know that there are some people who say we shouldn't feel too bad about death at all. Uh, If this is a closed universe, uh, which is what uh, those who who are atheists believe, that there is nothing beyond life, there's nothing beyond matter, that everything is uh, matter plus time plus chance, it's a closed universe, no spirit, no God. Well, in this closed universe, some people are going to get lucky and live a long life, others are not going to get lucky and they're going to die young, but there's no rhyme, there's no reason, there's no purpose, there's no good, there's no evil, that's what Richard Dawkins says, the famous atheist scientist, things just is. And when it comes to death, it's not something we should be afraid of, because death is just stopping existence, right? Your heart stops beating, you, you stop breathing, your brain function ceases, there's no consciousness, there's nothing after death, so why be troubled by it? Now, there's one writer, um, I don't know what her religious beliefs are, but she's not a Christian. She actually wrote a whole book. Her name is Diana Athill. She's apparently quite famous in the UK. And the whole book, she's in her 90s, by the way, so she's lived a long life. The whole book talks about how death is not something to be feared. It's something perfectly natural. And she ends the book with a poem that she wrote. And the poem is called, Why Would You Want Anything More Marvelous Than That? Why would you want anything more marvelous than death? Because... In her mind, death is just part of the natural cycle. It's the Lion King, right? We watch the Lion King. They're going to remake it and release it this year, I think. It's the circle of life. Why mourn death? Why grieve death? It's just part of the circle of life. And yet, I don't know about you, but recently um, I went to my grandfather's funeral in Taiwan. And I've never experienced this before, but in Taiwan they have these massive 
crematoriums, right, where, where bodies get um, cremated, often in Asia because of land space, they get bodies cremated. But this one was huge, and it was representative of all faiths. So you, you could go there and book a, you know, a Christian funeral, but you could also be Buddhist or Taoist or, you know, or Muslim, and you would just go and choose which kind of funeral you want. And obviously every religion will have a section, but when you're um, going to take the bodies to where they're actually cremate the bodies, um, you're kind of cross paths with each other. So we were there, um, the Christian funeral guys, but then, you know, the Taoists would be walking past with their bodies and, and their priests and the Buddhists with their, you know, traditions and the, the Muslims there. It was all happening. It was pretty hectic and it was all together. Now, I'll tell you what I did not observe. With all the faith traditions there, I did not observe one faith tradition that faced death with the kind of optimism that Diana Athill wrote about. Not one. Every single one treated death as something to mourn about, as a horrible intrusion, as a terrible interruption, as a destruction of something beautiful and good. Every single faith tradition did in their own way. There were lots of tears, and not just quiet tears, there were loud sobbing tears, howling tears. But do you know what? No one was there saying death was marvelous. And there were certainly no people standing around singing the circle of life. How do you feel about death? Chances are, they're not positive feelings of peace and optimism and wonder. Not if you've really faced death, okay? If you've ever sat with someone, maybe a loved one, or in my job, obviously, I've done it a few times, and they're slipping away in hospital, and you know what? People don't always die peacefully. <laughs> a lot of times it's very painful. It's very hard to watch. If you've ever faced death like that, and especially if there's someone or someone you love, so precious, you're not going to have positive feelings about it. So this question, um, what happens when we die, is a very important question. It's one of those questions that I think all human beings across the ages have asked. But immediately we've got a problem, this question, what happens when we die? Because where do you go for answers, right? Like... Every religion, every worldview will have their theories, and no matter how you and I feel, and often at funerals, you'll hear people say, oh, you know, this person is wherever, and you kind of think, that's great, that's positive thinking, but how do you know for sure? Like, how do you know for sure what happens when we die? Uh, Shakespeare wrote, through the mouth of Hamlet, that death is the undiscovered country. I don't know if you've heard that before. It's the undiscovered country because no one's ever returned from it. It's not like a traveler has gone to that country, come back and can tell you anything about it. Right? Death is the undiscovered country because no one has returned to tell you for sure what it's like. So we've got a problem, don't we? What happens when we die is one of those questions that everyone want to give their answers and maybe one of your answers when you have that discussion. But how do you know for sure if no one has ever returned from it? Well, the Bible has a big claim, of course. And if you're familiar with the claims of Christianity or Jesus, you'll know this one. And the claim of the Bible is that someone did come back from the undiscovered country, and he is still alive today, and lives to tell it. And that person is Jesus Christ. That he died and three days later, rose again. And the Bible says that there is good historical evidence to believe that this is true. Now, I know that you might be here, and that may not be convincing to you. Of course, you haven't investigated. You don't know if this, these are just big whopping claims that can be proven historically. Fair enough. 
But if for a moment you just suspend your disbelief, imagine if it were true. If, imagine if the Bible's claim that Jesus died and three days later walked out of the tomb, never to die again, and is able to... Do, do you see, if this were true, I know it may be a big if for you, but if it were true, then he might just hold the key to the question. If someone does come back from death, then of course that's someone we need to listen to when it comes to what happens when we die. So for you today, I might be asking you for a little while to just suspend your disbelief as we go into one of the biographies of Jesus' life and we see Jesus at the scene of death. Now, in dealing with the how do I know if this is even true, how do I know he actually rose from the dead, we'll come to that later on, right? But let's just have a look at Jesus in the face of death. And it's through that passage from John's biography of Jesus that May read out for us. Now, it's not his death. And it won't be his resurrection that we're talking about here. But it's someone else's. But this is a really interesting part of the Bible. Now, if you're following on those handouts you got when you came in, I'm up to point two. Um, Jesus' good friend Lazarus had died. And we don't know how he died. It was about a sickness. But we know it was unexpected, and we know that Lazarus died young, or basically in the prime of life, because they didn't expect that he would die. We also know that Jesus was very close to this guy, Lazarus, and his family. His two sisters, Mary and Martha, the three of them were very loved by Jesus. That's mentioned a couple of times in this uh, bit that we read from. Now, what I want to note, uh, because we can't go through all of it in detail again, we read it before, but... I want you to notice the emotions of Jesus. In other words, I want us to think about how did Jesus feel about death? Because we get a window into Jesus' emotions here. Uh, Just to refresh, uh, these are some, some of the verses that we read earlier. Have a look with me. I'll just read it out. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here... My brother wouldn't have died when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Now we get a a window into Jesus' emotions. There's two emotions that I've mentioned. One is not so surprising. The other is actually very surprising. Firstly, the not-so-surprising emotion, it's grief, okay? Jesus was grieving. He cried. Verse 35 is, some say it's the shortest verse of the Bible, John eleven thirty-five. 35, Jesus wept, only two words. But you see, this scene is, is full of many tears, lots of grief, not just Jesus. He's come here, and there's crying everywhere. We know uh, from the passage around this that the funeral had already come and gone. In fact, this was at least four days after the funeral. The body had been in the tomb for four days already. And so it's very unusual that there's still kind of be mourning and crying and grieving, but this was what was going on. There were people that were sticking around in this passage, to call them the Jews, were sticking around to try and comfort the sisters, Mary and Martha. Right? Four days later, four days after the funeral, because they were still evidently upset. And so faced with all this grief, unsurprisingly, Jesus was grieved as well. John 11, 35. Just those 
Two words. Jesus wept. Now, last week, uh, a lot of you probably weren't here, but we looked at uh, why does God allow suffering and evil? Why is there so much suffering and evil? And one of the points that I made from the Bible was that Christianity, unlike other religions, talks about God caring enough about our suffering to actually enter our world by becoming a man. Jesus is God in human flesh. And so you see here when God faces the depths of emotions of people in the face of suffering, he also is moved by it. We don't have a God who is unmoved. We have a God who experiences grief in the midst of suffering. That God actually cried in the midst of suffering. And if you're going through any sort of suffering and you've cried many tears, please know that the God of the Bible is not immune to your suffering. In fact, he cried also. So grief, that's the first one. But that's the expected emotion. There's another emotion, though, and it's unexpected. Now, it's there in verse 33, where it says, Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And that that word deeply moved, or what's translated as deeply moved, is again a few verses on in verse 38. Now, that word there that's been translated for us from the original Greek, uh, is a very strong emotional word. It means very strong emotional distress. Okay, It's a distress word. He's, he was distressed. And not just deeply moved in that he, we already know he cried, but he was actually distressed. And that begs the question of why would Jesus be so distressed at Lazarus' death? That's really puzzling, unexpected, because Jesus already knew what the outcome was. Uh, If if we go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 11, which I'll read because we didn't read it earlier, you'll see that Jesus had set this up for an outcome that he was going to do anyway, which if you you know this story, I know it's not a spoiler, is that he would raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew this was going to happen, but look how he set it up. Verse 1, let me read it. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sick will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory, so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick... He went really quickly to see Lazarus before he died. No, actually, he didn't say that, did it? It says Jesus deliberately stayed where he was two more days. Why did he delay his trip? He delayed his trip purposely so that he would be too late, so that Lazarus would die, so that Lazarus would be in the grave, in the tomb, for four days already, so that... He could display the power that God had given him to even raise a dead man to life. He set it up. He knew what the outcome was. Which then comes back to why was he distressed? Do you see what I mean? Why why was he so distressed if he knew what the outcome was and he was going to personally guarantee the outcome that Lazarus was going to come back to life? What's he distressed for? Well, as I said, that word used in, in twice, verse 33 and verse 38 is is a very unique word. It's a very strong word. It's actually related to the words that would translate as rebuke 
or scold or tell off. So it's, it's that kind of strong word. So it's, we're not talking about a soft kind of distress. Like, you know when you lose your keys and you can be stressed out and distressed? It's not that kind of distress, okay? The kind of distress this is meaning is almost an angry, violent sort of distress that you would feel in the face of injustice. So I don't know how you feel when you hear about kids being sold all over the world as slaves and usually sex slaves. How does that make you feel? That's happening all around the world today. Slavery is not over. Now, when I read that and I think these kids are my kids' age or younger, I feel that kind of distress. Not the I lost my keys distress, but then internal rage at the injustice of that. Especially when you hear about sometimes these poor village kids are sold by their own parents. Women, the girls especially, sold by their own parents to people they know are going to abuse. Like, how does that make you feel? That's the kind of distress. It's, it's a rage. It's an internal rage. So Jesus, right, this unexpected emotion he's feeling is an internal raging. Now, again, what's he raging at? Who's he raging at? Again, he knew that Lazarus was going to rise from the dead. So what's he raging at? Well, the most natural explanation And the one that I think makes the most sense when you read it is that Jesus was raging at death itself. You got that? Jesus was raging at the very fact of death itself. Even though he was going to do something incredible and miraculous in raising Lazarus from the dead, he still did not think that death was something to laugh about. Like the dumb ways to die video. Or feel okay about. Like Diana Athill's poem, Something Marvelous. Or even just something that you just accept because it just is. No, no, no. He raged against death. And rightly so. Because in a universe where there is a loving creator God, which is the universe that the Bible talks about, a God who loves all that he's made and he made all things good and who created us, in a world where there was nothing to interrupt, to cut short the joy of perfect relationships with him, with each other. Well, death in that world is a horrible and violent intruder that is totally against the Creator's plans. Something that he should rage about, something that we should rage against. Um, Carl Jung, if you are studied psychology, was a psychoanalyst, kind of a Freudian guy. Um, He wrote, and he's not a Christian, but I think he's got it much more correct than than Diana Athill, um, who said that death is marvelous. Look what he says. He says, death is indeed a fearful piece of brutality. There is no sense pretending otherwise. It's brutal not only as a physical event, but far more so psychically. A human being is torn away from us. And what remains is the icy stillness of death. There no longer exists any hope of a relationship for all the bridges have been smashed in one blow. I think he's right. I mean, what makes death horrible is not 
just the stopping of physical stuff, right? You, you stop breathing, your heart stops beating, your brain stops functioning. I mean, if that were it, then okay. But what makes death horrible is it robs life of what is most precious. And what's most precious about life? And you don't have to be a follower of Jesus or a Christian. You know the answer, right? It's not money. It's not career. It's, not, it's relationships. Yeah? What is most precious about human life is relationships. It's love. It's friendship. It's intimacy. And death, says Carl Jung, takes it all away in one blow. That's what is so horrible about death. The people that you love that you've lost, that's what's so horrible about death. The person that you used to talk to, write to, touch, see, smell, you can no longer do that because death has robbed you of that. And so Jesus, who the biographer John identifies right at the beginning of his biography, which we actually will look at starting from next week because we'll look at the uh, Gospel of John, the biography of John starting next week. Jesus, according to John, is God come in human flesh. And so you see here, when God came into his world, God raged at death because it was not meant to be. Now, before we move on, I just want you to pause here and realize how comforting, I mean, before Jesus even does anything, but how comforting it is that Jesus validates your feelings about death. I mean, isn't that comforting? That the God who made you says when you rage against death and you grieve at death and you hate that death has robbed someone from you, that God says, I know, because I feel the same. That validation, don't take that for granted because there are a lot of worldviews and religions that do not validate death. Oh, sorry, the feelings against death. Or at least they don't if they were consistent. Uh, I talked about atheism, a closed universe. If it's a closed universe, why rage at death? It just is. Circle of life. It just happens. Buddhism, major religion. You wouldn't rage at death either because the pathway to nirvana or enlightenment is actually to accept and to transcend all feelings tied to desire in this world. It includes feelings like love and grief includes joy and pain. Nirvana is to see beyond that, that that's all an illusion, that suffering is caused by desire, and so we've got to transcend those feelings. So you wouldn't rage at death if you were to truly reach enlightenment. Hinduism, another Eastern philosophy, you wouldn't rage at death either because Hindus believe that we would be reincarnated again and again. So beyond this life is another life and then another life. But eventually, after a certain number of reincarnations, you would be absorbed. The ideal is to be absorbed into the great impersonal oneness that is the universe. You wouldn't rage at death either. It's just part of the cycle to enlightenment in its own way. You see? But the God of the Bible says, no... Death is something to be raged against. And because it's something to be raged against, he's going to do something about it. So the scene is set up now for Jesus to do something about death. So I'm up to my third point, and we're going to read on from where we left off. We didn't read this earlier. So let's have a look at what happens. I want you to imagine it. Imagine you're one of the bystanders there, one of the people with Mary or Martha witnessing what's going on. So verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, is that word again, that distress, anger, ragey word, came to the tomb. 
It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for there's been four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. In this act, Jesus demonstrates that in God's universe, death is not the end. And he demonstrates it with power. Remember I said last week, the Bible storyline is very simple. God made it. We broke it. God will fix it. Right? God made it. We broke it. God will fix it. You see, there is a day coming when all that's broken will be fixed. And not just the world we live in, but we ourselves will be fixed. The Bible calls that the resurrection. Right? Resurrection. See, the Bible's view of life after death isn't spirits floating around in the sky on clouds with harps in heaven. That's a common myth and misunderstanding. It may be what you think. That's not actually the Bible's view of life after death. Life after death, what Christians ultimately hope for is a very physical existence, albeit a different type of physical, a better physical, because our resurrected bodies would be new bodies, not of this kind of stuff that gets sick and old. and A new kind of body inhabiting a renewed creation. Everything will be made new. But it's very physical. Because the Bible's picture is life after death, like real life after death. Now, um, I talked earlier about uh, some of the Eastern views of life after death, like the Hindu, Buddhist, Eastern views, where um, you basically, your greatest hope is that you would be absorbed into the great impersonal oneness. The, the great impersonal oneness um, is, is sort of like the force in Star Wars, okay? It, it's the universe, it's everything, it's nothing, it's, you know, that. But it's impersonal. Now, I want to suggest to you, as much as that is, you know, in some sense, a, a nice picture, it also is not life after death. It doesn't actually solve the problem of what death robs us of. Because think about it. What, what, remember what we talked about? What death takes away that's most precious in life is love and relationships, yeah? I mean, that's what makes death horrible. What death takes away is your ability to love and to be connected relationally with someone you love. Now, when you are absorbed into the great impersonal force or oneness, you're no longer a person, which actually means you're no longer able to love because only persons can love. Do you see? And so while the Hindu, Buddhist, Eastern picture of being absorbed in the impersonal may bring some level of comfort, it's also much less than life after death. It's actually the absorbing of any personality, of anything that's you. And it doesn't solve the problem of what death robs you of, which is 
love and relationships because you no longer exist as a person. So you have no capacity to love. Now, how different is that to the very physical, tangible, personal, real, and bodily hope of the Bible, which is resurrection in a new world? where it restores everything that death will take away, it maximizes everything that's lost and broken in this world. And so what Jesus does with Lazarus in calling that dead, four days rotting corpse out of the grave alive, that's just a pointer to that, okay? It's a pointer. Remember, God fixes it, but he's going to do that on a massive scale in the end. Lazarus was the entree. He was raised, but still raised with his old body. Came back alive. As far as we know, Lazarus would die again. Okay? And he was still raised in this world, a broken world full of sickness and sadness and suffering. Because it's just a pointer. Jesus does something here to say, hey, I can do something in the future that's much bigger. He gives you a pointer to the resurrection and the greater promise of life in the end when God fixes everything. And so his promise is really captured in verse 25. And this is the one I want to kind of leave us with. Because it's a promise not just for Martha and Mary and Lazarus and the people there. It's actually a promise to us. And Lazarus' resurrection is just a pointer to that. So look what Jesus says about himself. He says this, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Huge claims, aren't they? What Jesus does here in promising what he does is he's essentially saying death is no longer scary. Because if you believe in me, even if you die, you will live, really live. And if you believe in me, you will never really die. Huge promises. And as I said, he's making the same promises to you today. That if you believe in him, you can be sure that death will not be the end. Separation will not be the last word. Suffering and sadness won't last forever. And it's guaranteed yours if you believe. Now notice, Jesus says, if you believe. And that's it. If you believe. Not If you earn enough merit with me, if you go to church enough, do enough good deeds, earn enough points in my massive heavenly point system, like in the show The Good Place, I don't know if you watch this, but it's a point system view, and it's a very common view. If you earn enough points, you get enough merit, you can make it to heaven, the good place. And it's actually even a common view amongst those who uh, may come to church and Think that they're Christians. Is that your view? Because it's pretty much every view of every religion out there. There's some sort of merit system. Do enough, you make it. Don't do enough, you don't. Unfortunately, that view will not leave anyone with any confidence. Like, how can you ever be sure you've done enough? How can you? Like, if God sees and knows every action and every motive behind every action, how can I be sure that... When I face him and everything exposed, that my demerits won't outweigh my merits. Like, I'll take an honest look at myself and I'm pretty sure that my demerits outweigh my merits already. And God sees 100% with 100% clarity. 
And remember I said last week, when it comes to the suffering question, when God fixes the world, and He will fix the world, as I said, He made it, we broke it, He's going to fix it. He's going to fix it thoroughly, not piecemeal, not here, bit there, and just leave the rest. No, no, He's going to fix it fruit and root. He's going to fix it symptoms and sickness, which means that on the great day of judgment, before He makes everything new, any sin, any guilt, any secret shame will be brought out. All the dirty laundry will be aired. Everything will be revealed. Everything will be judged. And all of that with anyone and anything that's undealt with, unforgiven, will be part of what God will judge and destroy and swept away to make way for the new world where none of that will exist. Do you remember I said that if you were here? It's going to be a complete job, which means if there's stuff in my life undealt with, unforgiven, I'm going to be part of the problem, not the solution. And so if your view is the good place in the merit system, well, none of us are safe. Not if God does a thorough job. But here's the good news. Jesus did not say in his promise, whoever earns enough merit with me will be in the good place or will live. He says, whoever believes in me. You just have to believe in Him, and you will live, and you will never really die. And even if you die, you will have life. That's it. Believe. So what does it mean to believe? Sounds too easy, doesn't it? Well, yes and no. Um, in, in the Gospel of John, John's biography of Jesus, believe is a big theme. What does it really mean to believe? And you need to know believing is not just believing facts. Believing things are true. Believing intellectually and not really letting it change your life. It's a different kind of belief. It's a kind of belief where a better word would be trust or rely or depend. About 150 years ago, the most famous stuntman, really, but he was a tightrope worker, walker, was a guy called Charles Blondin. And in 1859, he strung a tightrope across one section of Niagara Falls. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls, it's pretty scary, right? He strung a tightrope across one section. And he says to the crowd, he was already famous by then, but he says to the crowd, I am the great Blondin. Do you believe that I can walk across this tightrope? And they all say, yes, we believe. And so he gets that, and that's a photo, and he actually walks across the tightrope. On the other side, he says to the crowd, I'm going to do it again. Do you believe that I can do this blindfolded? And they said, yes, we believe. And he puts on a blindfold, and there's photos of this. I didn't Find the, I didn't show you the photos, but he walks across blindfolded. Then on the other side, he says, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it with a wheelbarrow. Do you believe I can get across this with a wheelbarrow? And the crowd says, yes, we believe. And he goes across it, no joke, with a wheelbarrow. Again, there's a photo of this. And then back on the other side, he says, I'll do it one more time. Do you believe I can walk across this tightrope carrying someone on my back? And they said, yes, we believe. And he says, who will be that person? And no one said anything. In the end, he did do it. And there is a photo of this. He carries his manager. Poor guy. I guess if the manager doesn't believe, then, you know, the whole act is over, right? But he actually makes it across with his manager piggyback on a tightrope across. Crazy. Now, what does that illustrate? It illustrates that while everyone said they believed, only one person really believed. Well, maybe he was forced into it, but... <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, 
it's one thing to say you believe. It's another thing to say, I believe you. I trust you enough to get on your back so that you will put your words into action. That's the kind of belief we're talking about when it comes to believing in Jesus. Right? It is simple. It is easy. There's only one thing you need, but it's also a life thing. It's to completely trust in Jesus, to put your life in his hands like his manager put his life in Blondin's back. So why can you believe in Jesus? Because that's a big ask, right? You are going to be betting your life on his claims. How can you believe not just his words about life after death and resurrection, but also believe that when you face God with all of those secret shame and all the secret guilt, that that's not going to condemn you? That when it's all revealed, that God is still going to say, hey, you're okay with me. Come and share my new world. I mean, how can you trust that that's really going to happen? Well, here's the reason. That you can 100% absolutely believe and trust in Jesus because of Jesus, his own death and his own resurrection. You see, fast forward a little bit. We're leaving behind the death and resurrection of Lazarus to something much more important in the Gospel of John. Shortly after this, in John 11, Jesus will go to his own death. But like the whole Lazarus thing that was all planned out by Jesus, his death was completely planned out by Jesus, down to the kind of death he would suffer. And it was a horrible death, right? Condemned like a criminal, nailed to a Roman instrument of torture, a cross, abandoned and left to slowly bleed out and suffocate. Now, why would Jesus plan that kind of death? The man who could heal the sick and raise the dead would so powerlessly and weakly, as a tortured, broken person, die on a cross. Why would he plan that kind of death? Well, the Bible says because on the cross, something really important happened. There was a transaction that happened. That Jesus went to the cross innocent, but he went instead of the guilty. He was a sin bearer. That when he goes on the cross, he would take the punishment and the shame and the secret guilt and all the things that we would not be confident to face God with. Well, he takes it on the cross in our place. He takes your debt and my debt and he's willing to pay it all on our behalf. And because he does that, you see, you can believe in him. And because he does that, believing is enough. Believing is enough. You don't need a merit system anymore for eternal life. You don't need to pay for something that he's already paid for. The debt has been wiped. He bought the entry with blood. He earned forgiveness and he now is giving it to you for free. You don't need to earn it. Now, if you're here and and, and your misunderstanding up to now of Christianity is that I've got to earn it. Right? Or the Christian life is like this treadmill that anytime I stuff up, God is going to be angry at me. And I, if I don't come to church enough, that God is going to be displeased with me and something bad's going to be happening to me tomorrow. And I better not die because, you know, that's going to be even worse to face Him. If that's your view of Christianity, some sort of merit system, well, today I hope you hear Jesus says, No, I died so that you will never, ever have to earn a single cent. In the books of God. And you don't have to earn God's favor because I already purchased that for you. That this whole thing can be yours for free. No cost. 
If you believe, that's all. Just trust me. But more than just die, remember I said that Jesus was also raised from the dead. And his resurrection is, is on the one hand, like Lazarus, on the other hand, not like Lazarus. I mean, like Lazarus, his resurrection three days later in the first Easter Sunday was also a pointer. It was also looking forward to that end of time, God is going to make everything new, every one of his people resurrected for all eternity type thing. It's a pointer. But unlike Lazarus, it was a better pointer, a closer pointer, because remember I said Lazarus was raised in a body that was still Lazarus's old body, that Lazarus would eventually die. Well, not, not Jesus. The, the Bible says that when Jesus rose from the dead, he was raised with the new creation body made of a different substance that would never undergo decay or death ever again. He was raised with that body in advance, and he still got it, and he'll return with it. And he guarantees that those who belong to him will all get it, that body. Right? He's gone ahead of us. Right? That's Jesus' resurrection. The guarantee that what happens to him will happen to his people. About a thousand years ago in um, a cruel, horrible age called the early medieval age, um, in Europe, they used to do this thing called trial by combat. Have you heard of this? Trial by combat. Sometimes uh, you would settle disputes uh, rather than, you know, there being a good justice system, rule of law, essentially you would fight it out and whoever wins would win. Trial by combat. Now, that's all well and good if you were happened to be a buff knight with armor and sword and stuff and you could fight. What if you were a poor widow, right, and you were having a dispute with a rich landowner and it was trial by combat? There's no way you could fight against the landowner, especially if he was a knight or something like that. So what you would do in the medieval ages, if you could then find a champion, someone who would fight for you, someone who would represent you, and this person was willing to risk their life for you, and if they fought on your behalf, your champion, and faced off against the person or their champion, then if your champion won, then you would win. That's how it used to work. It's a stupid system because it's horribly unjust. But it's a good illustration, though, of what happens... For someone who trusts in Jesus. You see, faced with death, humanity, like we're, we're like the poor widow about to face trial by combat. Like we're stuffed, right? Because how many, like no one survives death. We're too weak. It's the undiscovered country and no one comes out from the other side. So we're stuffed. We're facing death and we are just not going to win. But then Jesus turns up and he's our champion. He says, I'll go for you. I will go into death for you. And so he battles death. He stares it down, and he defeats it by rising again. There's a passage I showed you from last week, a great one, Hebrews 2. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shed in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You see what our champion did? He let death swallow him. He went into death. He died. But then he punched a hole through the back of it and came out the other side, victorious and alive, to assure us that death is not the end. And because he did that, death no longer has any scary element for those who are his. He's our champion. The poet George Herbert said, 
17th century poet. He said, death used to be an executioner. Right? Death used to be an executioner. You faced death. That was it. But the good news of Jesus has made him a gardener. The good news of Jesus has made the executioner into a gardener. It's no longer the end. Death is just a flower bed from which beautiful things will grow because of Jesus. And all you have to do is believe. And he's making that promise to you. So will you believe? Will you believe? Now, for many of you here, probably for the majority of you who've been invited here, whether it's the first time you've heard this or something like this or lots of times, you probably will say, no, I'm not ready for that. I need more information because, as I said right at the beginning, I'm asking for a big if. If Jesus rose from the dead, then all these things might be true. Well, that's a big if, right? People just don't come back from the dead. And if that's you and you're like, I need more information, I need to ask the hard questions. How do I know he really rose from the dead? How do I even know I can trust the Bible's account of him? Well, great questions, and we want you to ask it, and we want you to discuss it, and that's why we have Fresh, okay? Starting two days' time for five weeks. You know, week two, we're going to look at how can we rely on the Bible. Week three, no, week four, I think we're going to look at how do we know Jesus rose from the dead. Like, these are important questions. But you're not going to be able to hear it in half an hour from me. It's much better if you hear it a little bit and then go and discuss it, ask questions, get it answered. That's fresh. So can I just encourage you, don't miss this opportunity. Find out more, come to fresh. Now for some though, because I, I don't know who God has brought along today, and maybe he's, you know, just, you're just ready. All right, you know, deep in your heart. Okay, he's ready. God has brought me here. I'm ready. I believe, and I just need to take that step, and I'm ready to do that today. Now, again, it may not be the majority of you who've been invited, but it may be some of you. And if that's you, I'm going to um, pray a very simple prayer with you. I'm going to ask everyone to kind of bow their heads and, 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 and just keep quiet so that when I pray it, and, and if this is your prayer, you can echo it quietly in your head to God. He'll hear you. All right? You don't have to pray anything out loud. You don't have to come to the front. We're not going to do an altar call or anything like that. All right? But if you want to pray this to Jesus because you're ready to believe in him, then I don't want you to have to go home not having the opportunity to do that. So we're going to do that now. Again, most of you, the best thing to do is come back to Fresh on Tuesday. But for some of you, you might be ready because God has been speaking to you and Jesus is making that invitation. You're ready to take it. So if I can ask everyone to... Just sort of um, look down or bow your heads and just not look around, basically, so the people who, who want to pray won't feel too self-conscious about it. I'm going to read through that prayer line by line, and if, if you're ready to pray it, and God knows your heart, then why don't you say it to Jesus in your heart as I pray it. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the resurrection and the life. Thank you that you died for me and rose again. Please forgive me for how I wronged you and others. Help me to follow you from this day forward. Thank you that I can be confident of eternal life with you. Amen. I'm going to ask the band to come up. Now, if you prayed that because you knew it was time and God knew it was time and uh, great news because you walked in here not really believing, 
and therefore not being sure of what's going to happen when you die. But you're going to walk out today and eternal life, the Bible says, doesn't just start after you die. It starts the moment you believe in Jesus. It starts now. Eternity has started now. A new creation has started in your heart. And that's the best news ever. Now, we've got a way of um, getting help to you, answering some of the questions that come for becoming a new follower of Jesus. I'm going to talk about that in a moment, but we're going to sing first. So why don't you stand with me and uh, let's sing, and then I'll come back up and explain a few ways in which we can get some uh, information or help to you. Let's stand. <laughs> 